What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. This is Anthony. And this is James. And today we're going to do an episode entirely on the film Inception, which came out in 2010, directed by Christopher Nolan, written by Christopher Nolan as well. This film stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hardy, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Marion Cotillard, Elliot Page, Killian Murphy, Ken Watanabe, Dilip Rao, and Michael Caine. On a budget of $165 million, this movie made $835 million, which is absurd. And it's about a thief who steals corporate secrets through the use of dream-sharing technology and is given the inverse task of planting an idea in the mind of a CEO. This film cemented Christopher Nolan as uh, the most prominent large-scale filmmaker in the world because he had come off of Dark Knight and Batman Begins, obviously. But this was it's an, it was an original property. It's not based on anything. Uh, it's just his original writing and the the, the fact that it, it's a very complex movie you have to pay attention when you watch it it's highly intelligent and yet he still managed to make a movie that made over 800 million dollars that's not based on anything else and so i think it was an, a stunning accomplishment for nolan and solidified his status as a director in the world yeah and remember this is 2010 this is 11 years ago when 800 million dollars was still a huge accomplishment this it is, is now yeah it is now but i mean i'm talking about 10 years ago where, you know, this is pre all the Marvel franchises are out. You know, even Iron mm -hmm. Man didn't make that much money. And obviously, The Dark Knight made a billion. So coming off an original sci-fi concept that I'm sure when he pitched this idea to Warner Brothers after he made Insomnia, he pitched like the idea. He didn't have a script ready. And I'm sure they okayed it because he's a great director and the idea seemed cool. But it took him about eight or ten years to actually write the script. It's it's a hard task for a studio that to invest that much money in a project like that. I mean, we talk about it all the time. Films are investments for these companies. They want to make money off them. That's their biggest uh, goal when they make movies. I mean, it's not like A24, which I'm sure they're okay with losing money on a great film. But, you know, Warner Brothers, they want to make as much money as possible. These are business commodities. These are investments. And they expect a huge return. And to give $165 million to, yes, he made the Batman trilogy, but like, a sci-fi idea that I'm sure when they read the script, they're like, what the hell is this about? And so I think because... Chris Nolan is such an accomplished director, and he's such an intelligent guy. He probably pitched it the right way, and I'm sure it was a really cool idea to the people in the room. The best way to support Raiders of Lost Podcast is to become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Raiders of Lost Podcast and become a $2, $5, or $10 patron. Every tier gets specific perks like personalized messages, personalized videos, sneak peeks at upcoming episodes, and top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast the first week of every month. Let's go. And also, he earned it. He earned it with The Dark Knight. When you make a, a studio a billion dollars, you get a green light to do whatever you want. But also, he knows how to sell his movie. Like, he knows it's a very complex movie, and he knows it's hard to understand, and that it's challenging to audiences. But he also knows that they'll come to the theater if the spectacle is there. And so that's why all of his films, they have these giant set pieces. They have stunning action, great stunt work. Um, and this this film, it has stunt work you've never seen before. And it has like incredible practical um, special effects. And it's an incredible piece of cinema. But he knew that if the trailer showed all this incredible spectacle, then people would be lining out the door even if they knew they would have a hard time following the story yeah and i mean he makes awesome trailers for his movies and i i think inception one of the best movie trailers i've ever seen in my entire life go back and watch it on youtube it's a phenomenal trailer the, again the spectacle of these amazing shots and sequences they've never seen anything like before plus they have really great original music in the trailer too I mean, in the trailer, there, I could just remember um, the Paris city falling in on itself and JGL falling through the hallway. So there's just these pieces of 
a film that like were just completely fresh. Yeah, and they use that song called Mine Heist, but that I think is made by this original musician called Zach Hemsey or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, I listen to why. Uh, it's a really cool song to just check out on Spotify or, or iTunes or something like that. And this film, um, I know Nolan doesn't get a ton of critical acclaim in terms of like writing and, and directing until later in his career. Obviously, we think he's one of the greatest, but this film was nominated for eight Oscars, including winning for Best Cinematography by Wally Fisser, who did an amazing job in this movie. Best sound mixing, best sound design, and best visual effects. And Wally Fisher was a great compliment to Chris Nolan's vision. And it's too bad they don't work together anymore. But I mean, Hoyt is phenomenal too. I think Hoyt might even be better at explain at showing Chris Nolan's vision in the films. But again, Wally Fisher, one of the best cinematographers, if he ever comes back to the craft. Yeah, he absolutely earned the Oscar for this for cinematography. But also, this film uh, it it got snubbed in editing. It didn't get nominated for editing for by Lee Smith. And I think that this film. The editing is vital to the story, and I, you could argue this is the, one of the best edited films of the century. Yeah, if you think about it, especially the second half when they have the three storylines going on in the di- three different levels of the yeah. dreams, and they're timing all the kicks and everything together. And combining slow motion with the uh, real-time speed of the, of, the, of the filmmaking, it's just a stunning piece of editing. And Lee Smith has edited uh, almost every Nolan film, and he, he was vital to helping tell the story, making it um, easy for audiences, easier for audiences to, to follow what was happening. And this film is is beloved. It's an 8.8 on IMDb for the user ratings. That's high. That's gigantic. That's really high. Like, there are only a couple of movies above 8.7. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a big deal. And I think that when this film came out, it stunned everyone. No one had seen anything like it. And it's, it's an amazing concept, the idea of trying to pull a heist within someone's mind. Mm-hmm. And it's a very crazy sci-fi idea. It's, it's been done before. In anime films and a few other films before Cronenberg did it, but I think that Nolan approached it with his unique um, take on filmmaking, where he is such a huge fan of James Bond, and so that's why with this film especially, um, it has the international espionage element to it, and it has like the teamwork of it's like a Mission Impossible team, but he loves traversing the globe in his films and he loves james bond so he has a lot of those um themes and and colored palettes on the film the james bond qualities in this film yeah and the suits hence why i wore a suit for this episode the jacket (laughs) for the aesthetic and um of course there are similarities between this movie and anime like you said specifically the anime film paprika so there's a lot of similar shots and you know we've seen other directors do this too with darren aronofsky did this with requiem for a dream in another anime film and some similar shots include the uh the giant mirror that ariadne uses in when she's creating her first dream um and a few other shots and also black swan has taken some you know cinematography or concepts from anime and i know people are like kind of quick to say that it's stealing the ideas I think it's more of like a reference or just like a remix of those original ideas. Every every great filmmaker does it. Wes Anderson, uh, you would be surprised the number of shots of his are um, replicated from old films or artwork or photography. Yeah, but I think I, I just want to give a shout out to Anime and Paprika for a lot of the inspiration for the, the cinematography in this movie in, in very unique scenes. Yeah, and also the film Existence by Cronenberg had yes. a big influence on him because it has a very similar contraption, the thing that uh, puts the people under in this film. And Existence have a, has a similar thing where you plug in to this um, device that 
puts you into a simulation but that simulation world in a video game but this is actually going into someone else's consciousness so it's not quite the same but it has a very similar concept and it's obviously similar to the matrix you know yeah. a group of people going inside one different reality you could say or or dimension in a way in someone else's mind rather than a, an ai interface computer and i would love to just for a few minutes talk about the practical effects of this film before we get into like characters and story plot and everything if that's cool with you nolan's all about that practicality pal and again this won best visual effects at the oscars and the visual effects shot on inception was actually lower than batman begins and by visual effects we mean green screen or cgi being used and there were about 500 on inception whereas batman begins was 620 and um marvel movies have over 2000 3000 visual effects yeah shots something like that was movie. insane yeah and what they did for this film for a lot of practical effects which he did the same thing in batman and his other films is a lot of miniatures like especially that giant fortress at the end in the in the in the antarctic environment that robert fisher's uh secrets are stuck inside um that was a miniature that they blew up because because when you do cgi and you have to explode a building it's very hard to get the and make it look realistic for in terms of gravity and stones falling and explosions happening it can yeah. look cool but it doesn't look as real as if you had an actual miniature yeah watching the actual object literally blow apart and seeing real flames and seeing the real um destruction of a of, an, a, of a structure it, we can tell when it's real, when it's not real. And it, then and that makes all the difference. And then uh, another great uh, visual effects shot they did was the Dream City, which is like the limbo city yeah. um, that Leo uh, would Cobb and, Mar and Maul and, and uh, Ariadne <laughs> eventually go to too. And this is a real location in Morocco. So in like Ariadne and... and the abandoned town area. Yeah, so it's like yeah. a, it's not even an abandoned town. It's like this these giant abil abandoned complexes yeah. just like in the on the edge of the water that Nolan said that when they were scouting, they found this area and they're like, what is this area over here? It's right on the water, abandoned buildings. It looks very eerie. It seems very odd for these buildings to be there. Mm -hmm. And they use that practically. And then they built out the rest of the world, obviously. And one of the coolest effects of this crumbling city in limbo is when they wash up on the shore, the buildings are, you know, crumbling. And, and the, the, what they were going for, Nolan was going for was basically um, a structural like model of a glacier like a city glacier yeah. yeah not an avalanche but a glacier so you know when you oh you, gotcha yeah, so yeah like yeah. a glacier Ice falling off yeah, breaking off crumbles of it. and falls yeah. to water they did that but they superimposed basically city elements and and roads and, and buildings and structures to make it look like that's part of a mind that's dissolving in a way mm -hmm. this episode of raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our friends at manscaped.com use our coupon code raiders of the lost at checkout for 20 percent off and free shipping year-round again raiders of the lost for 20 percent off and free shipping two million men are already using manscaped products two million you got to get on this we're on it they've sent us their lawnmower 3.0 groomer this thing is like a spaceship for grooming they've sent us their deodorants their deodorizers their colognes their toe deodorant their toe spray it's like your, your toes are so always so fresh and smell amazing after you take your socks after after a long day their briefs are amazing shirts are comfortable they're the leaders in below the waist grooming and we're here to tell you that they're the best products to use for the job. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off in free shipping. Fellas, get on this. Ladies, these are great gifts for the men in your life. And I guarantee they will be so excited to get something from Manscaped. And one of my favorite practical effects in this film is, I think, one of the most surprising and shocking moments of the movie is that is the when the train runs through L.A. Because they're in, when they first get to the dream um, in Robert Fisher's mind, and they're in downtown LA, Ariadne and Cobb are in that car, and then suddenly a freight train smashes into them and just thunders across the road on the street. 
and it's none of that CGI. They actually drove a real freight train through downtown LA. I remember when they were filming, people were filming like behind the scenes from their windows and the apartments around the, the film set. And there's actually a train on site that they actually drove into the set. And it's an astounding thing. Like most filmmakers would be like, oh, we'll just CGI the train and it'll look great. But Nolan's like, no, let's actually just get a train and put it in there. Like, why the fuck not? And that was in the trailer. Like, yeah. that's so cool. Like, have you we've never seen anything like that before? It's so mm -hmm. interesting. And then I think that's a great effect. But the, I think the best practical effect scene in the entire movie, obviously, is the spinning hallway of, yeah. of the uh, the hotel when uh, it goes zero G, when the van's going backwards and, and uh, Arthur has to, you know, try to figure out how to drop them without gravity. And this scene was created by taking inspiration from 2001 A Space Odyssey, where uh, Kubrick made that centrifuge, and then they basically made a, another sort of centrifuge, just a giant tunnel, which was um, created with, it's 100 foot long, it was created with enormous circular iron bars that were 30 feet in diameter. And so then these were these were all on a track that spun at I think six RPM, so rotations per minute. Yes, they were just always slowly spinning. Yeah. yeah, and then at the same, and then they built the set, this hallway inside this giant centrifuge. And the cool thing about it is, they couldn't light this normally with like studio lighting or anything like that. So they had to do all, build all the lighting for the shots into the walls and into the ceilings and floors of this set so they could actually use light because they did go in there with the camera and shoot but they couldn't bring lights in there yeah and there's two ways they could they filmed it is they had a they put the camera on a crane and then they just move the crane into the hallway as it spun and then they also which is my it's my favorite shot in the entire film and it's a good like 15 second long take of the action sequence with arthur fighting the henchmen where um they just fix the camera to the floor and then so the camera doesn't move and and so Arthur and the and the guy he's fighting are going all around the ceiling and walls because because the uh, the floor is changing for them, but for us it stays the same. So it's an it looks fake. That's how good it is. It, it looks it looks unbelievable, but it's really that's how they filmed it and that's how they captured it. And I think it's the the most uh, stunning shot of the entire film. When that when I saw that for the first time, I was absolutely knocked on my ass. And um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, actually trained for six weeks for this scene alone because um, there's a lot of stunt work and wire work involved. And he, he spent six weeks training and did ev nearly every single shot except for one extremely dangerous stunt. Otherwise, he did 99% of the stunt work in that scene. Yeah, and while the camera was mounted to the floor or ceiling or wall of this rotating hallway, the camera was also on its own rig where it was spinning in unison with the rotating hallway so that that way we stay with the same perception of gravity as the actors as it's changing yeah, exactly. it's really complex and if yeah. if they got the rotation wrong it doesn't look right so it's a really astounding practical effect it's one of my probably my favorite ever seen in film and it's so simple but it's so effective you mm -hmm. know what i mean you don't need special you don't need visual effects all the time and he show he has proved this time and time again and i, I think that a lot of other filmmakers should take note you know what i mean because we can tell when things aren't real. And what makes Nolan films so great are that it feels like it's really happening. Yeah, when you see Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, Arthur, like, stumbling and his, he's adjusting to the gravity and he's, like, walking on the from the wall to the ceiling to the floor. It's incredible. It, you'll see nothing like it ever. And then probably the, the largest special, the, the largest practical effect that Nolan's ever done is in this movie. And that was causing an actual avalanche. Because in that frozen Tudra sequence... Um, the kick is set off um, and it causes the avalanche on the entire environment. And that's not CGI. That's not fake. They actually set up explosives on the mountainside and blew them up. 
and it caused this gigantic avalanche to happen and they captured it on film and you could say that's probably the biggest scale effect he's ever done in for a film yeah probably and you just brought up a terminology from the film and i think it's going to be important for those of you who you know i'm sure everyone listening has seen this movie but I, i think some people you know might be a little confused but let's go over the terminology of inception and this the things we'll hear when you watch the film and so let's start off with you just said the kick and the kick is a method of being awoken from a dream um it's called the kick and it's the sensation of falling hitting water or a sharp jolt to to basically wake the sleeper up and that happens to us like if you're having a nightmare and you're like getting killed or you're being chased by something and you get frightened and you wake up that it's like your own kick in real life that feeling of falling that wakes you up from a dream and in terms of the kick um in this film uh Arthur uses a song to provide himself with the the first uh, warning of setting off the kick. And the song they use is a, a famous Edith Piaf song, Non Je Non Regrette Rien, which means uh, I have no regrets. And um, this film, this this song was uh, specifically chosen by Chris Nolan as um, being used for the kick in the film because it has to do with the, the storyline itself and the story in the song. They're very, uh, re- uh, they, they complement each other. And then, so he wrote this song into the script. It's not like they made the movie and like, oh, we need a song to put in here. Like he wrote it on the page before they started filming. And then when he went to Hans Zimmer to make the music for this, he gave him the song, the Edith Piaf song. And he goes, this is going to be the the color of the the soundtrack I want it to be. And I need you to turn this into the entire score. And so that famous that everyone like kind of makes fun of with this movie, it's actually... Uh, the Edith Piaf song, but they slowed it down to about I think thirty percent of the real the normal speed, and that song has like a, a steady brass like dun 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 dun, and so that dun 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 turn into so that's why the score has those Brahms because Hans Zimmer threw in the the slowing down of speed and time in relation to the to the to the song that Nolan had inspired was inspired by. Yeah, and what that does it creates that like this like pulsating um aspect or a pulsating percussion aspect to, to yeah. the to the music to like that acts as the percussion in a way. Yeah. And it's really interesting and So that's why it has that famous Brahm. Yeah, it's how and now everyone uses that in all their Yeah, every movies. every single trailer has it. Another important uh, terminology, a term is totem and a totem is a small object that no one else knows. It's something unique and it's specifically used for someone in a dream, whether you're a subject or the dreamer, to know whether or not you're actually in a dream or not. And so, for example, Cobb famously uses that spinning uh, talisman uh, totem that we see, but you know, mm-hmm. people argue that that is a uh, Maul's totem. Yeah, and that in that Cobb's real totem is his wedding ring. His wedding ring. And then uh, Arthur has the loaded die, and then Ariadne, uh, played by Elliot Page, makes the uh, the chess piece, the bishop's piece with yeah. the with the hole in it. Mm-hmm. And I think Arthur, I mean. Uh, Ames, played by Tom Hardy, I think it's assumed that his is one of those chess pieces. It's, it's, no, it's a poker I mean, chip. I mean, the poker chip. I'm yeah. sorry, the, the red poker chip. Yeah, he has a special one. And I think he thinks that if he rubs them, it can and duplicate in, in the dream or something like that. It's, he knows how it feels when he rubs them together. Yeah, so I, they I, imply. I think, yeah, they imply that that's Ames. And we never learn what uh, Satos is, Saito's is, because he isn't an experienced dream extractor, so he, I don't think he's prepared for him. But technically, the carpet that he puts his face on in his... In the guy, other guy's dream, that is actually a bit technically a totem for him to realize he's not dreaming. That that's a good point. It, it, it's it's an unintentional totem. Yeah, exactly. Because it was a mistake by the team. So yeah, you're absolutely right about that. 
and some other uh, terms uh we got the architect and the architect is the person who creates the world of the dream and they're in charge of bringing the subject into the dream and their job is to try to create the world so well to that subject that it tricks them into thinking that they're in the real world and they don't want them to know that they're dreaming and this is used this is an important job and this is what Cobb used to do and he was a very skilled architect because uh, his psyche has been so consumed by the death of his wife, Maul, he can no longer build dreams anymore. And that's why he hires Ariadne, played by Elliot Page, to uh, build the dreams. And Ariadne is properly named because Ariadne was the Greek goddess of um, of mazes. And she actually helped, in the famous story, she helped Theseus escape the Manator's labyrinth by giving him a sword uh, and a ball of red fleece that she helped lead him through the maze. So um, the the term, the name Ariadne comes from the Greek um, history of that, of yeah, that story. I'm so glad you brought that up in the mazes specifically because the architect, they don't have to design the dream with real world architecture and physics because they can change things like how um, when Arthur is teaching Ariadne how to build mazes and he shows her the the Penbro the Pen Penrose yeah the Penrose staircase which is a paradox because the architect also has to create these basically traps or loopholes or or paradoxes to 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 trick and slow down the subconscious defense mechanism of the sleeper and the dreamer so that they have enough time to extract whatever information they are going to get or whatever mission they're trying to accomplish and that's the whole point of all these missions that only Ariadne knows and then later on we hear at the at the ice fortress you can call it where she has to relay the information about the hidden air duct and what that's how Maul is able to show up yeah and they have to do this because like you said the subconscious can defend itself and especially with characters like Robert Fisher their target in this film he had been trained in the past his consciousness had been trained to um, defend itself against any in, um, invaders in his consciousness so um, those kinds of paradoxes become vital to the survival of the mission and then we have a forger and a forger is a specialist in these dream espionage uh jobs and what he can do or she can do is impersonations they can adopt the physical appearance and mannerisms of a person they're daniel day lewis yeah basically so he's a method actor and that's why uh in the film ames impersonates peter browning with enough skill a forger can copy appearance mannerisms voice age sex size anything like that and so that's ames specialty is a forger and then we have a specialist who is basically Arthur, and Arthur's yeah. just kind of all around like the right-hand man of Cobb, like a special ops guy. And then the, what's really great about this film is because you can you can say that the team is also a metaphor for filmmaking because the team in Inception are pretty much a film crew. So you have Cobb is the director of the film, Arthur is the producer, Ariadne is the production designer, Eames is the lead actor, Sato is the studio that's funding the picture, and then Robert Fisher is the audience. This episode is sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Use our special coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. If you're looking at our set on YouTube, we hope you're watching it on YouTube because it's a much better experience. And I have a haircut now. Yeah, it looks good. Um, we have all these great posters that MoviePosters.com sent us. These are high quality. The printing is the best you can do. They have all sorts of sh sizes, framing, backlighting, whatever you want. MoviePosters.com can handle it. If you love movies, if you love TV shows, if you're passionate about the media arts, there's no better way to express that passion than to decorate your home in your bedroom with movie posters and TV posters. And so if you want to do that, you've got to go to MoviePosters.com. It's the best place to get your movie posters online. Use our coupon code Raiders15 
to get 15% off your order today. Again, Raiders15 at MoviePosters.com. Pretty much all of Christopher Nolan's films, except for the Batman films, um, involve some kind of time manipulation or, or uh, a way of uh, depicting time on screen in different and exciting ways. Like Dunkirk, um, he doesn't change, he doesn't explore changing time, but the way he shows the film with three different times, the triptych, the triptych um, storytelling, that's his still, he's still manipulating time storytelling wise. But in this film, uh, I think it's his best example of playing with time because it's a fascinating concept where the deeper you go into these levels of dreaming, uh, the slower time gets for the for the invader in that consciousness and in, in that dream. And that becomes the main dilemma of the film for the characters eventually because there isn't there is a, a, a there is a bottom to the dreaming levels and that's limbo. And I think um every time you go down it um time slows down by uh times eighteen. It changes. It changes. So before they get linked up with um uh, Yusuf. Yeah. So the original compound that they use, it. I think every time you go down, um, five minutes in the real world is an hour in the dream world. The first dream. Yeah, the first original compounds. But when Yusuf gets involved, who's the basically the potion maker, he expands those compounds and those limits to where the first level down is a week. And then I think it's... And the only way you can be woken up is by being tipped over. Or once you, once the compound wears yeah. out. So you have, two, yeah, you have those a, two options. Yeah. So that's why there's such a dilemma. And then I think that the second level down is three months. And then I think limbo is obviously endless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you go crazy and you're stuck down there in your mind forever, you're yeah. in a prison forever, who knows yeah. how long it could last. And so that's why it's different in the second half of the film because they have to add that very powerful sedative because they're going three levels down. So that's one of the major... Um, conflicts of the film and it has that the fantastic crescendo where you have characters in every dream level and you can see the relation of how time passes by for each character in relation to the prior one like the vans falling into the river in extreme slow motion while ariane and Cobb are in real time in limbo and it's a, it's an unbelievable climax of the film that shows that chris one of christopher nolan's favorite storytelling techniques is having multiple storylines um, climaxing at the same time and then showing those three different store subplots simultaneously and like this i think this is a great example of that yeah and just to stay on dreams for a little bit because it's such an interesting concept to explore reality and and dreams because i think the brain is so fascinating because we have no idea how the brain works really we have no idea what dreams are and it's it's so cool to watch a movie about this and this concept of going inside dreams and and also Losing your reality, which is something that Cobb has to deal with this for this entire film, is because the way he lost his wife, it's it's kind of driven him on the brink of insanity. And he's also spent so much of his adult life and life in general in the dream world that he doesn't know dreams from reality almost anymore. And it's really interesting when they're in Morocco with Yusuf and the dream doctor, you can call him, and he shows them how the effective the compound is and he's for a second he's like perhaps you don't want to see mm. and then they show him and he shows this room with dozens of men that are all sharing a dream together and he says that they come here about three to four hours each day to dream and they dream for about 40 hours each time and they're they're asking why, why do they do this why do they come come here and he says it's the only way they can dream he says they after come to be woken up yeah after a while it's the only way they can dream but they come to have been woken up and because the dream has become their reality. And so that's kind of what Cobb is going through too at the same time. And also you gotta you gotta understand that that Cobb, first of all, he was stuck in limbo. So he spent more than fifty years in limbo. And then also 
as an architect, he did this for a living, training military personnel in these dreams. And so you can imagine he's probably spent like, it's got to be like close to 100 years. In, lifetimes, in, yeah. Yeah, like two lifetimes maybe in dream world. So it, if you think about it, he's he could be like 150 years old based on like what he has experienced in his mind. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's a fascinating way to look at the character because he spent so much time in the dream worlds that he, he has lived probably longer than anyone. And a really cool fact about this is while Chris Nolan was trying to figure out the story and crack it, um, he originally had the intention of turning it into a horror film and having um, the dreams turn into nightmares, which would have been super cool, but it's not really his style to do horror. But I'm sure someone like like David Lynch or like Tim Burton could have done something really cool with that concept. But I think it, it works best as this espionage heist type of thriller. Yeah, I wonder if people would have thought that it was too much like Nightmare on Elm Street or something like that. Yeah, it could be. Obviously, I don't think he'd have like a monster as a villain or something like yeah. that. But who knows? But you want to get into characters for a little bit? Let's get into the characters. Let's get into characters because first we have Dominic Cobb played by Leonardo DiCaprio. And he's a really great protagonist in this film because you really empathize him and he's gone through a lot. And he, he's also, you can say, done horrible things because he's the one that planted inception of his wife's mind of that her world is not real, which is what caused all the pain in his life and caused her to kill herself. And the, that idea will never leave her head as long as she exists. And He's just trying to get back to his children because she killed herself but framed him for her murder at the same time. As a way to threaten her, him to also kill himself yeah, too. Yeah, so he's gone through a lot. And like like uh, when he sees his father-in-law, played by uh, the great Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Um, she, he's actually Maul's father. It's uh, his father-in-law. And he's explained to him that he has this very particular set of skills. And that they didn't give him many options to for a career path you know dream worlds were originally created by the military like they explained to teach and train soldiers in combat and you can imagine Cobb's been doing this whole life but then once you know a word got out obviously someone's going to use every kind of technology that's ever created to benefit and create criminal activity and that's obviously how he got into this espionage world and criminality and and spies and everything you could say and he's like a secret agent of mines and and i think he just has incredible motivation and goals for a character in a film his goal is very personal and actually leonardo dicaprio brought that to the to the story uh the script wasn't originally that personal and um that relate that heavy on relationships in terms of cobb's family and his wife but um after reading the initial version of the script dicaprio worked with nolan and um fleshed out the character of cobb and made him more relatable and made his drive more family-based and um, that made the film a little less confusing on the page because um, less time was spent focused on the, the technology and the concepts and more was spent on the character of Cobb. And I think that benefited the film. And that's something that DiCaprio, like really great actors, uh, part of what they do is writing. You know, they help rewrite scenes. They help rewrite dialogue. They come up with things. And um, a lot of people probably underestimate how smart great actors are in terms of storytelling. And that's an example of DiCaprio's genius. And then we have Arthur, who's played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and he's basically Cobb's right-hand man. Um, although, you know, Cobb is the overall mastermind of their jobs, Arthur's kind of in, in charge of, like, filling in the details and taking care of specifics, doing research, ma making sure everything goes right. That's why, um, obviously, later on when Cobb lies to everyone and doesn't tell them the, the, the situation that if they die, they get stuck in limbo, and he's very upset with 
uh, Arthur for not knowing that there'd be subconscious defense inside Fisher's mind. That's part of Arthur's job and what he does. And I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt, this is my favorite role for sure that he's ever been in uh, in film. He's in. great. In he's this. amazing. This. Yeah. He, he gives it 110% because he was hanging from wires for about two and a half, three <laughs> weeks to make this film. But I'm sure he was happy to, to work with Nolan. Oh, absolutely. And he, he's one of my favorite characters. And uh, he and Eames have uh, that playful back and forth and that rivalry. And it seems like there's definitely been a, a long history between them two. And they don't seem to really like each other, or enjoy each other's company. Eames is more teasing of him. But I think Arthur, he is like the the, like he reminds you of like he's like a special ops kind of assassin type character that Cobb needs on all of these jobs because um, like Eam says he's he's the best at what he does. Yeah, Arthur's reliable. I think yeah. that's what you can say for him, especially when he's in the situation where he's by himself on that level in that dream by himself and he has to figure out how to drop everybody in I think seven minutes without gravity. How do you how do you drop people without gravity? And it's, he's very smart and he figures out to put them in the elevator with the explosives to create the basically rocket ship. And then other than Cobb, Arthur is probably the person who gives us the most exposition in the film mm -hmm. because uh, Cobb gives a lot of exposition to Ariadne, but then so does Arthur because Ariadne uh, especially, essentially acts as the audience surrogate of this film because she's new to the world and she's new to the team. And so we are represented by Ariadne and Elliot Page is fantastic in this movie. Yeah, and Ames, Ames is played by Tom Hardy. We all know this guy. Uh, he's got a great tan in this movie. He really <laughs> wears really cool clothing. <laughs> I had to. And, he does uh, have a good tan. Um, he's a very charming guy. And I know, although that him and Arthur have that back and forth, they both do have a, a, a somewhat respect for each other for sure. Definitely. And they're both very good at what they do. And they're both... And, Ames is just as charming as uh, you could say Arthur is efficient in a way. Mm -hmm. And then we basically just talked about Ariadne, basically. Yeah. She's the person who is a student or the best student of uh, our, um, Michael Caine's character, Professor Stephen Miles. And again, Cobb has to hire her to create the dreams as the architect because Maul won't let her anymore. You know what I love about Michael Caine in the Nolan movies is that other than Interstellar and the Batman movies, he only has such small screen time, but still, like, you love seeing him. And it's become a tradition in Nolan films to see Michael Caine in his movies. And uh, Michael Caine has now been in eight of Nolan's movies, all of his films since Batman Begins. And uh, he was in uh, Tenet for, like, two minutes. But, like, when he shows up, you're like, it's Michael Caine. Yeah. He's great. And uh, I've seen interviews where Chris Nolan says that uh, Caine has become, like, his good luck charm. And so, like, he, I don't think he would make a movie without Michael Caine's involvement in some in some capacity. He better not, because I expect to see that warm smile at every movie. Yeah. Then we have Marion Cotillard, who plays Maul, who is Cobb's wife. And basically, the entire film, she's not real. She's a projection of Cobb's subconscious, and that's why... Uh, throughout the film, every time Cobb is in a dream, he's trying to fight the subconscious of Mal, Mal to come out and and basically spoil the mission and wreck it. And the reason why she is a villain is because she's fueled by his regret and his uh, hatred of himself of what he did to Maul because he's the reason why she killed herself. And so those feelings feed into this um, projection of her because... He feels that she would she would hate him for what he did, and so that's why she has this personality in the dream world. And basically, he has her trapped when he's not in other people's dreams, and he's dreaming by himself in this sick prison of memories, and they're not dreams. And Cobb specifically says not to create 
things from memory. And there's that funny line where Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character Arthur is like, well, you notice how many times Cobb says not to do things that he does a lot. And um, that's because it obviously gets you in trouble with your subconscious. And he keeps her trapped there. And that's where we get exposition of his past with uh, them being trapped in limbo and in the situation where uh, Maul killed herself trying to get him to die too at the same time. Christopher Nolan just loves killing wives and girlfriends in his movies. Yeah, it's true. And nearly every one of his movies. So he kills off Leonard's wife in Memento, Maul in Inception, Rachel in The Dark Knight, Sarah in The Prestige, Cooper's wife in Interstellar. She she died before the film of a, a brain tumor, I think. And Talia Ghul dies in Dark Knight Rises. And I can guarantee you if... Marion Cotillard's ever in a Chris Nolan movie, she's the villain. Yeah, definitely. She might not Don't trust seem her. like it right away, but she's definitely the villain. Don't trust her. And then Saito is played by Ken Watanabe, who is actually the uh, impersonation, impersonating Ra's al Ghul in Batman Begins, and he's phenomenal in that role, and Nolan loved him so much in that character that he cast him in this. I think he, he he's such a big fan of his, and I, I read that Nolan made a big role for him specifically in this movie because he felt bad for not giving him enough screen time in Batman Begins. Yeah, and so Saito is basically this very powerful, wealthy business magnate, and he's the one who hires Cobb and Arthur and their team to uh, do Inception on Robert Fisher's in his brain. That sounds weird, but that's what happens. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, yeah, do Fi Inception on that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Fisher, uh, his company is uh, a monopoly in the energy in industry, and so Saito, Saito wants to have the man dismantle his company and start a new one from scratch so that both his company and the other companies in, in the industry don't get eaten up by Fisher's company. Yeah, and Fisher's played by Killian Murphy, another frequent collaborator of Chris Nolan. Also, this is uh, the third movie in which Killian Murphy has to wear a, a bag and it over his head in a Christopher <laughs> Nolan movie. Because you get the Batman Begins, and then you get Dark Knight Rises, and then uh, no, Batman Begins, Dark Knight, and then Inception. He's always wearing a bag over, bag over his face. That's pretty funny. Yeah. <sighs> we just both yeah. cracked. That's pretty funny. And Robert Fisher's a really inter interesting character because... He he. They kind of portray him as like sort of a villainous character, I guess you could say in this movie. But really, it's, he's just kind of been given a. a, a he's not, tough, I, don't, I wouldn't say the villain. He's the mark. He kind of seems like it in a in a way. But I think it's because his father is such a bad guy, and and Robert Fisher, his father Maurice Fisher, is dying. And he's on his deathbed, and he's basically is going to leave his entire empire to Fisher, and their job is to change his mind, basically about that, and that he has multiple insecurities in this film and, and one of them is the fear of not living up to his father's standards or being able to create a, a business or something as successful and great that his father created i don't think that's an insecurity until it's brought up with inception mm -hmm. so so they basically create the insecurity for him to the, do it himself what fisher's troubling what troubles fisher is that um his father was not a good father to him mm -hmm. and now he's dealing with the father's death and like, there's an example when Cobb says hi to him on the plane and gives him his passport back, and he says, oh, are you um, Fisher's son? And, like, your father was a great man. And you can see the look on Ro on Robert's face where he's like, uh, sure, you, you you can just see he's like, you don't know what he was really like. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? So I, he's dealing with that. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know what? You are right because what they have to do with Inception is they're trying to figure out how to plant this complex uh, idea in this guy's mind, and the only way for it to sprout naturally is to plan it the most simple version of it so that he himself comes up with this idea Thinks he does. that he has insecurities yeah. that he can't create an empire as big as his father's or compares to his father's. So yeah, in a way, you're probably right that 
he they make they trick him into creating these insecurities about that. Yeah, they they realize Eames realizes in their meeting that the best way would be to take advantage of the troubled relationship because Eames has Eames had spent time following Peter Browning and gathering as much information about um, the, the Fishers as well, and that's how he knew that their relationship was so poor, the father and son. A lot of people criticize Chris Nolan for like the use of exposition in his films, how they there's too much of it or it's excessive and there's just too much dialogue of exposition. But I'm telling you, watch Inception again. He tells you everything about the movie, all the rules within five minutes. He tells you everything that's going on. It's not that much. Yeah, and, and he doesn't he doesn't tell you, he actually shows you everything that's going on. So I mean I mean, obviously Nolan shows you the rules of this movie before telling you everything. So when we open up and Sado's Leaves that room when he becomes young after being old, and uh, Arthur says that he knows to to Cobb, and then the room shakes, and we see the ticking watch slowing down, and then Nolan takes you to this different world, different time of day, different part of the world, but Cobb is asleep now, and we all obviously have seen the trailer, we know the synopsis, there's something about dreams, so... He showed everyone that Cobb's asleep, but we're in perception. We're perceiving that dream at the same time. And then Cobb, again, we learn, is there to extract information to get a job. And then the time changes again, and then we're actually in another dream. And so we also learn that multiple people at the same time can go inside the same dream. So he's showing you everything without telling you. It's a great point you make because no one wants to talk about how amazing the opening of the film is because he shows you an entire mission of entering someone's dream and trying to plant an idea in it without explaining at all. There's no exposition at all for many of the characters. It's all show, don't tell. And so that's a great point. No one, everyone complains about exposition in this film, but he's, he pulled off the first 15 minutes without telling you anything. It could be his best opening sequence of all of his movies. That, that sure entire mission. The most interesting. Yeah. And then we even learn more where after Maul shoots Arthur, uh, she's, she says something like, judging by the decor, we're in your dream, aren't we, Arthur? But I mean, Maul's wrong because we're actually in Cobb's dream. So it's an interesting concept that Maul is a construct of Cobb's mind, but she and she knows they're in her dream, but she thinks they're in somebody else's dream. In terms of villains... The villains of this movie are subconscious and projections. So Fisher's subconscious and the defenses he has installed in there, and then also the projection of Maul. So those are the two main villains of this movie. Otherwise, there's nothing else because the only villains in a dream would be these things, these concepts within the dream. You know what I mean? Technically, you could say that Saito is a villain in this movie. He's just trying to <laughs> change some guy's brain to benefit his company. Obviously, he says the He's world. A billionaire. Like, he says the world doesn't need, can't afford Robert Fisher. But I mean, you're just going to destroy a company. So he's kind of a villain. I mean, if, if you think about it, the extraction team—they're villains. They're breaking into somebody's mind. So technically, the good guys are the subconscious, the defenses of Fisher's mind. That's a really funny take. That's a really <laughs> I think funny it's, take. it's absolutely true. This is not legal activity. And but in this film, once it gets going, it just is a it's it's a ride, man. It's so great. And we saw this on IMAX, I remember the first time. And I've seen this film it's gotta be 20, 25 times now over the past um ten years. And I, I am constantly blown away by it. I never get bored of it. And every time I watch this movie, I always see new details. Like I, I just the last time I watched it. I saw that there are like numbers planted on different areas, like on the taxi cab, that uh, has the same number as a number on the train. And so Nolan hit all these little details throughout the film. And it's just the more times you watch it, the more you get from it. And uh, one of my favorite details of the film is that that number that Fisher throws out is that 528491. 
for the longest time i was like what does this number mean like what is the point of it is it just random thing that nolan came up with and but if you look into it the digits five two eight four nine one they actually add up to a, a prime number so you add up five plus two plus eight plus four plus nine plus one that equals 29 and then if you take two nine the, the digits of 29 if you do two plus nine that equals 11 and then if you take the two digits of 11, 1 and 1, if you go 1 plus 1, that equals 2. And 2 is the first prime number in mathematics. And it's also the only prime number that's an even number as well. And so I think that's no accident that this number is that is, is that certain alignment. Yeah, and, and the cool thing about that number is it's just, in the story, it's random numbers from Fisher's mind. And yeah. it's shown throughout the film, then the, the hotel room that they go to. And so it, it's a really cool um a little addition to the entire concept of the film and i love that because the the idea of dreaming it's such a mysterious thing like we were talking about in the beginning and uh, there's some great lines in this movie like when Cobb is explaining to ariadne the idea of of entering dreams and what dreaming is like if you actually think about it and they're sitting at that cafe in i think it's italy or france it looks like italy yeah it looks like italy and then uh he goes and then he asks her how do we get here and she, she's like, she can't even figure it out. She can't remember. And he, then, because she, she thinks they were in reality the whole time. And that's what dreaming can be like, where you're in these random environments and situations, but you have no recollection of how you got there. You did get there. You did dream it. You just don't remember it. And it's a fascinating way to, because it's a hard thing to portray in a film. And Nolan is smart where he just doesn't even, he just mentions it. You know what I mean? It's real simple. It doesn't get too complex. And, the ideas in this movie are, they can be complicated, but um, the, if you really take the time to try to think about it and understand it and watch the film a few times, it's really simple, honestly. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up, that scene specifically where we show the first time a dream basically comes up, like crumbles and, and tears apart and they wake up. And yeah. it's kind of like when you lucid dream, when you're in a dream and you realize, oh my God, I'm in a dream right now. And you yeah. kind of- And I, and then you're Spider-Man, but you can't shoot your webs anymore. Or in, but there's a ticking clock. Like you're going to wake up at some point because you can only lucid, from my experiences, I can only lucid dream for so long of a period of time until I wake up. And I think this shows like the disintegration of, of what a dream is really like, how uh, they have all those explosions around them at the cafe, like going off in slow-mo and then everything just eventually crumbles and, and all tears apart and they actually filmed those things exploding and they actually just superimposed it and shot in super high frame rate and it's a really cool set video yeah, when you stuff see stuff was really flying all over the place a lot of that stuff was real well i mean even the even the car that flips they really flipped that car and yeah. stuff so it's really cool but it's just this, this is such an interesting concept and then we see you know when dreamers finally for the first time realize that they're actually dreaming and how they react and things are shaking and it's really cool and then they also showed like the fear like um when Maul is about to stab Ariadne in that first test, like she she knows she's in a dream, but she's still afraid of dying. Just like how if you know you're in a dream, but you're still afraid of dying, you know what I mean? Because it feels real in the moments of dreaming. And then you wake up and you're like, oh, it's just a dream. And we have two major plots in this film. And the first one is obviously them trying to plant the idea inside Robert Fisher's mind. And then also we have Cobb dealing with Maul and this subconscious uh, projection of her that won't let him move on from his life and won't let him achieve his missions or anything like that and you know the story of maul and Cobb is they did this together as as a you can say as a hobby or or a job or something like that and they were pushing the boundaries of dreaming and then they were like the 
they helped pioneers. Um, yeah, pioneers of it. Yeah. So they had the like the first concepts of a dream within a dream within a dream, and then that's when they get stuck in limbo for fifty years. And the the problem with when they were in limbo, Maul chose to forget that she was in a dream, and she said that that was her reality. Now and she hid her secret away, and she didn't want to leave that place. She didn't want to leave this limbo. And then imagine it's been fifty years, so yeah. you can understand that. But for Cobb he found it eventually impossible to live there anymore. And although Maul was possessed with th this idea that Cobb has to do the hardest thing that he can think of is to plant this idea in Maul's head that possesses her, that says the world that she's in is not real. And eventually... Then he does this with the totem. Yeah. Because the totem doesn't fall over. It doesn't topple in the dream. Yeah. And so they need to kill themselves in order to wake themselves up. And that's the scene with them lying down on the train tracks. However, when they do kill themselves and they wake up in their, their real world, Maul still has that idea planted in her mind. And she's possessed with it, like I said. And she's consumed by this idea. And she doesn't even... She says she doesn't recognize her children. And she would know what they would really she, look she like. She thinks the real world is a dream now. Yeah. Because this idea is so deep in her brain yeah. that she'll never not think that. Yeah. And so Cobb's biggest mistake is not telling everybody the situation, but Ariadne finds this out when she, while Cobb's sleeping on his own, sneaks into his dream and finds that, that prison of memories with the elevator, that, which is where she finds all, all the information. We see the scene where we talked about earlier where Maul set her, him up as a framed murder in order for him to commit suicide with her. Yeah, it's a tragic story uh, between this couple, and this is why Ariane has to be brought on because Cobb can't trust himself because if he knows the plans and the, the layout of the labyrinth of the dream, then Maul knows it and she can sabotage it. And so that's why she is the ultimate villain of the movie. And we see as soon as they go inside Fisher's dream on the plane that Maul and in, in, that Cobb already can't control his subconscious, and that's the train. The train from Limbo comes in hits those cars in the street and, and piles them over. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people complain about Christopher Nolan's sound design, but I think that he tries to be as realistic uh, and believable as possible, whether it's dialogue, whether it's gunfire or whatever. He wants it to sound like it's actually happening. And that's why this movie gets loud. It is Very a loud, loud movie. The sound mix is intense. And this, this mission that they're on to succeed at inception on robert fisher's mind like i said it goes horribly wrong as soon as they get in not just the train it starts off with the raining because uh yusuf, yusuf had the, too much free champagne but then immediately they're ambushed because uh arthur's research didn't show that robert fisher was actually trained in subconscious defense so that his mind is trying to protect himself um the fright train saito gets shot and fatally wounded um and then Cobb, we find out left out all that information that if they die they're trapped in limbo and it's really intense because Limbo is basically endless mind space. And the only, and you go to Limbo, you go to the person who's shared the dream with you, who's been there before. So they would end up in the Limbo that Cobb was in. Yeah, that he and uh, he and Maul built for over 50 year span and, when they were stuck in there. Yeah, and so their only objective now, their only choice is to continue the mission because they're not going to last just a week with with the the subconscious defense coming after them, they won't last. Yeah, weeks. they're getting swarmed. So they'd have to just go on with the mission to achieve it. And then uh, this uh, one of my favorite sequences is, is the entire sequence in like that hotel, especially one of the best scenes of the movie is the scene where Cobb approaches Fisher at the bar, and he tells him it's very risky, Mister Charles. Mister, he does the Mister Charles routine where he tells the dreamer that they're in a dream and that they're under attack, and it's a risky thing because it can cause the dreamer to panic and wake up. And I, it's, it's such an iconic scene because um, Cobb begins pointing out how things are strange because they're in a dream. Gravity's not 
acting normally. So the the bar starts tilting because of the car driving, and then uh, water rain splashes horizontally against the windows because again with the with the car being chased in the rain. And it's it's an amazing sequence. And uh, Killian Murphy does a great job of of panicking and then coming to terms with the fact and accepting it. And it's one of my favorite moments of the film. Yeah, because it's just like when Cobb is telling Ariadne that they're in a dream still and she's, you know, panicking and the the dream. But Cobb lets the dream explode. But here he has to keep uh, Fisher calm to keep the dream going and keep him awake and to prevent the subconscious defenses to come after them. And this scene also provided us with one of the most famous memes of all time that Leo squinting his eye. That's <laughs> one of the widest used memes ever. So many of them. <laughs> And then basically what happens is they they trick Fisher into helping them break into his own subconscious because, again, they use Fisher's mind into tricking him to, into thinking that Peter Browning is the one who kidnapped Robert Fisher and is trying to prevent Fisher from what he says is given to his father's last torment. And then the movie really takes off because we have the hallway sequence, which we talked about earlier with Arthur and the henchmen in, in the zero-G hallway that's rotating. And then also the rest of the team, they enter the next stream down, which is that frozen tundra base. And like I mentioned earlier, how Chris Nolan is a huge fan of James Bond. I think he's going to make James Bond movie eventually. I hope so. I think after, I think they might reboot it with him once Craig's done. That's my guess. With he, Tom Hardy? Maybe. I mean, they've worked together so much, but he would make a great Bond movie. And this whole entire third act set in the frozen tundra base, that is a, a that was heavily inspired by the James Bond uh, J- the James Bond film on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which has a similar climax in a similar environment. In the wardrobe. Yeah, in the wardrobe. And when you when you're watching this sequence with like especially with finding all the henchmen in the snow gear and, and the snow plows and like in the skiing, like it, it's very fun. And it, it feels, it has a bit of campiness that the James Bond movies had back then. You know what I mean? And that's, I really liked it because it, it got to the point where it's like, oh, it's not super, super serious. Like we're having a little fun here, you know? Yeah. And the problem that they're in is this entire like second half of this film is under a crazy ticking clock because Yusuf again is driving this van that they're all inside. And he, at the same time is, he has to provide the kick and give them countdowns and everything. And they hear the music too soon. And um ariadne has been they have to get inside that safe room basically to get inside the safe in the with the code Mm -hmm. and ariadne is told by Cobb to explain to fisher and saito the basically the the secret passage through the paradoxes and maze of the fortress and this is good and bad news good news is because they can get to the and this is because the first kick didn't work yeah because they missed the first kick when they the van leaps off the bridge and they're waiting for the one when they hit the water. And it's good because they get to that safe room early, but it's also bad because Cobb hears the plans, which means that Maul now knows the plans. And this is when Maul sabotages the plan and she shoots Fisher. And this is, again, another big problem that they're going to have because now Fisher's trapped in limbo. And it's a great scene because Cobb has Maul in his sights and he knows she's just a projection. He knows she's not real, but he still can't pull the trigger. And he says, are you sure she's not real? Something like that. Yes, he says something. He like whispered, mutters something to himself. Yeah. He says, how do you know? Yeah. And because again, Cobb, you're right. He does say that. He says, yeah. how do you know? Because Ariadne says he's, she's not real. He says, how do you know? And this is because again, Cobb doesn't fully know the difference between dreams and reality anymore. Yeah. And then this is uh, the panic moment for the film because they've, they've kind of failed here. Um, and so they, they have to once again think on the spot and improvise and um, they decide to go down into limbo to save Fisher. It's Ari- Ariadne's idea too. Yeah, it's Ariadne's idea to go down to limbo to find Maul to save Fisher. 
and this like when they get to this stage of the film like i it, it's so intense and it's so enthralling stakes are yeah the same. stakes are in, enormous in this film it's great yeah, and so they decide that they'll go into the limbo and create their own kick while they're there to get back and the thing is when they're in limbo again first level is a week second level is three months and then the limbo is 10 years that's the way it works. Unless you die, then you're trapped there basically forever until your eggs go to scrambled egg. Yeah. Your mind goes to scrambled eggs. And so they're going to go down there and create the the kick with that. But at the same time, they'll know when to perform the kick when, um, our, when Ames hears the song for the next kick is coming. And he uses the defibrillator to create the lightning effect. Basically, to he, tell them, he's, that, and he also he has to wait for Fisher, yeah, to to pull out that little what do you call it the, the pinwheel, yeah, the pinwheel in his father's safe next to his bed, um, so that way he knows that the idea has successfully successfully been planted in his mind, and then they can ride the next kick, which is the building collapsing and exploding. But here is the the trick is this is where um, Cobb decides to stay in limbo. To find Saito because at the same time this is going on, Saito has died. And that means Saito has been trapped in limbo. The brilliance of this movie is we're at the end of the film, which is the same scene as the opening of the film. When Cobb washes ashore and he's brought into Saito's um, dining room and Saito is an old man. And now we're at that moment, even though the film started with that, it's going to bookend with it. And, and this isn't the first time Nolan's done this too. Yeah, it's not the first time he's done it and... It's a brilliant scene because at, at it's so mysterious the, in the opening of the film. It's a very mysterious scene, especially because he has been traveling through dreams and he just woke up in limbo. Cobb, has, I think it's a little confusing for people, but uh, what Nolan didn't like fully explain, but he implies is that I think it, when you wake up in limbo, you kind of, just like how you don't know how you got here in a dream, you, he doesn't know how he got here. Mm -hmm. It's that same concept that he explains to Ariane at the cafe. It's like, how do we get here? And she's like, I don't remember. So Cobb woke up on the beach and he's like, how did I get here? I don't remember. So that's why both he and Saito are confused in the opening of the film. So I think if anyone had a little trouble understanding why Cobb couldn't explain right away what was going on, that's why. And also Saito has been living there for at least 50 years. And so again, yeah. he's kind of like Cobb where he has probably, ch and Maul. Yeah. Where he's accepted this dream as his reality. He's accepted Limbo as his reality now. Yeah. yeah. But it's a brilliant way to cap both ends of the film. But before he goes there, he he. this is basically also where, before Ariadne hits the kick, Cobb finally faces his grief and his trauma and his guilt and explains that, and basically, they kill Maul in a way. They kill the projection of her, and she's not real anymore. And she killed him. Yeah. That's why he woke up on the shore. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 yeah I'm trying. Yeah. <laughs> Good call. We got this. We got this. It's a complicated movie. It's hard to explain on the spot. Yeah. And he manages to convince Saito to wake up, and this is where they wake up on the plane while Hans Zimmer's incredible score, Time, is playing. This is probably one of the most famous score, film score songs ever made. In I think it's his most played song online. Absolutely. Yeah. And... It's so interesting to see the reactions of all the characters on the plane, especially Saito, because Saito lived a lifetime on in limbo. He lived a lifetime down there. While everyone else was only in there for like a couple of days, maybe he was there for a long time, and that's why he looks like kind of like hiding behind the seat. Like, what happened? Where am I? How did this happen? And also, Fisher glances at when they were getting their baggage at baggage claim. Um, Fisher glances at 
Cobb and acts like he kind of recognizes him but can't point him out mm-hmm. because he spent so much time with him in the dream. Yeah, and again, it's like a dream. It's trying to remember everything from your dream, which is so hard to do. Yeah. And obviously we have the ending of the film where he makes it home to his kids. and Or does he? And uh, Michael Caine's there, and he spins the totem and because he sees his kid, and, and he sat, finally is about to see their faces again. So he spins the totem to make sure he's not dreaming. Then he sees their kids' faces for the first time in years, and he goes and goes to watch see the kids instead of watch the totem fall. And then... Nolan just messes with you and keeps the camera slow panning in until it cuts while the totem's still spinning. And it just, it, it like tilts just a little bit. And it's just, still, just a hair, still debated whether he was in a dream or not. And you can look at it your own way. I just look at it as he, regardless of if he's in the dream or not, he's uh, no longer obsessed with the idea and the, the guilt and, um, the fear of being in a dream and he's now he's embracing life again yeah so whatever reality he's in for Cobb whatever he thinks he's in if he's real or not he's accepting his his reality is as real but I think that Cobb woke up I think the mission was in a success and there are obviously a ton of theories and I think the wedding ring theory is super fascinating where mm-hmm. um every time Cobb is seen wearing a wedding ring each scene of that, he's actually dreaming because in in those dreams and in those minds, Maul exists and Maul is real and Maul is a projection. So obviously, he'd still have a wedding ring. However, at the end of the film, he's not wearing a wedding ring when he gets out of the dream when he spins the totem. Mm-hmm. And also, Michael Caine said that if he's in the ending, it's real. <laughs> that's a good that's a good line. But I don't think Chris Nolan has actually confirmed or not whether he was asleep or dreaming. But that's- I read an interview where he said he thinks that he 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 found his family. That's what I think he, he said. Yeah, but Chris Nolan leaves this ambiguous for you to decide. You get to exactly. make up for your own mind. Yeah. Was he awake or was he asleep? You have the power. You I get lo- the power. I love ambiguous endings. Yeah, and I love this ending. There, there's a really great acronym in this film uh, regarding the main characters' names. And so the main cast are named Dom, Robert, Eames, Arthur, Maul, and Saito. And the first letter of each of those names spelled in order spells out dreams. And then if you add Peter, Ariane, and Yusuf, then it says dreams pay, which is what they do for um, heisting for, for their heists and mines. Dreams pay. On the DVD Blu-ray of this film, the runtime of the movie is exactly 8,888 seconds. And the number eight looks like the symbol for infinity. Inception's runtime is two hours and 28 minutes long which is identical to the famous Edith Piaf song used multiple times in the film, which runs at 2 minutes and 28 seconds long. Marion Cotillard and Elliot Page appear in Inception together, and they are both nominated for the Best Actress category at the BAFTAs and for the Academy Award in 2008. Cotillard was nominated for La Vienne en Rose, and Elliot Page was nominated for Juno in 2007. Cotillard won both awards. There are actually three Inceptions in the movie Inception. The first one is when Cobb does Inception on his wife, Maul, so that, to tell her that her world is not real. The second one is the Inception that the team does on Robert Fisher's mind to break up his inheritance. And the third Inception is done when Ariadne does Inception on Cobb to tell him that his wife is dead and that he needs to come back to his family. Inception is one of my favorite movies. I think it could be Chris Nolan's best film. It's uh, it's hard to pick a favorite of his, but it, it might be my favorite Nolan movie. Yeah, it's a phenomenal movie. I mean, I've seen this like at least probably two dozen times. Inception is one of the greatest sci-fi films made this century. And I mean, I, we understand people have different reactions to it. And 
whether or not they understand it fully but i hope this helped you get more of a grasp on the concepts the story the themes and and everything involved with the movie and thank you so much for tuning in take care everyone Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost podcast. Hit that subscribe button and notification bell. Listen to the audio formats of Raiders of the Lost podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast.